When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Humans of Speedway podcast, where we talk to some of the people who make up the Speedway community, both on and off the track. Now, some of these people you will know, perhaps others less so, but all of them have dedicated their lives to the sport in some way. I'm Ian Brannan, and joining me in this episode is one of British Speedway's most prolific promoters, Neil Machin. Like so many of us, Neil went along to the Speedway, in this case in Sheffield, one night in his youth. But who could have foreseen the journey that that would become, meeting one of his best mates, taking that club to league championships, and becoming the godfather of Britain's most successful rider in the history of the sport. It's been quite a ride, to coin a very intentional pun, and I'm pleased to say joining me now to tell just some of it in his own words is the former Sheffield and Leicester promoter, Neil Machin. Welcome, Neil. Good morning, Ian, and your um, and your uh, following listeners, shall we say. Well, I, I, I think there's at least three. <laughs> so, with you here, that's four. Okay, we we might we might know them all personally then between us, <laughs> eh? <laughs> it's a small world. So um, we're here to talk about your life and times, really, in many ways, and 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 you've had many in the uh, you know speedway world. But let, let's go right back to the very start. You as a a young man cutting the uh, cutting quite a, a strut around Sheffield, I imagine. Once upon a time, what what was your um, sort of early life like and 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 when did you first attend speedway well ian um that's that's a very good starting point i think um i would have probably been uh, about 12 years old um i didn't even know about speedway i'd never heard of it my pal from school said oh we're off to speedway what's what the hell is that and um hey long story short um i arrived at Olerton stadium um I was absolutely blown away with all the odd sounding names and the the the, the, um, the rivalry and the banter on the terraces and the noise and the different people and and um, I couldn't wait for the following Thursday to be honest I was hooked right from day one and um, and I guess that influenced what happened donkeys years later in a way to some extent Ian. Yeah, and, and obviously that was a different time then, wasn't it, in terms of the, the crowds and the whole sort of experience than, than probably what you would expect it to 
have now. Yeah, and I, and I think it sort of set the scene in my thinking because, of course, uh, in the early 60s, going to a place like Holton Stadium, um, there would have probably been four or 5,000 people uh, in the terraces and it was a, a, a fairly noisy affair. And, uh, and of course, it, as I say, it was the banter from the terraces and, and the excitement and the passing and the needle and, uh, and the occasional uh, handbags. If we if we can say that, um, yeah. that sort of lit my fire, and um, and of course years and years and years later, um, I, I'd, I'd got that point of reference where I, I believed I could resurrect it in part anyway. So um, it was an influence, and um, and hey, I, I suppose I didn't realise that day when I was twelve years old when I first went to Alton, um how it was actually going to influence and change my entire life uh i have to say in hindsight um not not such a uh, not such an upheaval you know we take rough with the smooth um I, I could talk to you about all the negative and and all the soul searching and all the disappointments and problems and losing my partner when when i was two or three years into the into thing but i'm sure we'll come on to that later um uh so yeah who could have seen foreseen um what a 12 year old uh, how he was going to be influenced um throughout his entire life by uh, basically um attending a speedway event uh, in the early 60s your days of being a promoter at sheffield were a fair while away what was your uh, your early career like when you left school well, um, I left school when I was 15 years old, as many people did in those days. I just wanted to go to work and get a job and earn a, earn a, a few quid so that when I turned 16, I could afford to buy a motorbike. It was my entire life's, um, um, well, uh, it, it was um, it, it was the, 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 my ambition in life up to, you know, prior to being 16, to actually have a motorbike when I was 16. And... Um, uh, and that's pretty much how it unfolded. I I, uh, I went to British Gas when I was fifteen. I served an apprenticeship. I was uh, I was fully time served um, by the time I was twenty, and um, and actually um, I'd letters after my name before I was twenty one. So um, wow. So I I had a proper trade, um, which obviously opened doors to to go into um, into sales and marketing. Um, probably 14 years later or something. Um, and um, and I suppose I went to work for, for Potterton Boilers, I went to work for Clairol, and it was all really about sort of establishing myself in a, in a sales and marketing type environment with blue chip companies, which, um, which really is what unfolded um, and continued pretty much right up to um, getting this crazy notion of taking over the assets of this thing called Sheffield Speedway. <laughs> uh, someone who was to become a, a great friend of yours was a certain Rob Wolfenden. How did that friendship come about? Yeah, I remember it as it was yesterday, to be honest. I, 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 as many Sheffield people did in those days, um, went to Scunthorpe. I think it might have been uh, Monday nights in those days. Um, went to Scunthorpe Speedway, uh very, very different to what I'd encountered, obviously, at Olerton, um, and in a different league. And um, met up with this character, who I didn't know from a bar of sort. Actually, I met his mum before I did him, um, this character called Rob Wolfenden. And um, we just sort of uh, had a like-mindedness. We we, uh, we got talking about playing snooker. Neither of us drank. And um, 
So we, we, we there was a level of sort of like-mindedness from day one. And of course, um, as the years unfolded, I, I discovered that Rob Wuffington was a competitor, didn't matter what we did, whether it was um, temping, bowling, snooker, uh didn't matter what it was it was always a world final uh rob was always a competitor and um i have to say very difficult to beat at anything i have to say um but hey the rapport developed i became his his mechanic traveled the length and breadth of the country uh, i had had a brief encounter when i was about 23 24 years old bought a second hand speedway bike i was obsessed with um having a go I realised I was too big, too old, and too poor. Um, so, um, and uh, I couldn't go to work the following day when I'd been um, crashed through the fence at Bellevue or Kingsland or wherever I'd been to the training school. So, um, um, I, 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 um, <laughs> I moved on from that because I had to, I had to go to work. I had to continue with my um, commercial career. And um, so fitting into the um, into the mechanical side, fueling and oiling, I guess was was second best in my world in those days to to actually being a competitor. And um, and Rob Wuffingham was it, and um, and we travelled well the length and breadth of the country many many times um, across Europe on various jaunts, and then later uh, into Australia and and here and there. So um, that relationship just developed. We were always like-minded. We were always on the same page. We never listened to music uh, on those long hauls. We were always in an escort van. And um, it was always an economy run sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, that's how it was in those days. And, um, and, and I thrived on it. I, I planned my work schedules around uh, Rob Wolfingham's fixtures. Um, so I didn't miss many fixtures over um, over that um, period in time, and um, and obviously uh, gained an insight into the other side of the fence in 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 uh, in that way. The thing I'm, I'm sort of learning through doing this is is the relationship that riders have with their mechanics. You know, they're a lot closer than probably they than is apparent to to many fans. Well, I think that's a very very valid point that you make Ian because and hey if you look at my godson Ty Wuffington um, whenever I um, uh, travel um, to a GP or something and catch up with Ty and spend a little bit of time before and after meetings and stuff um, I always remind his his mechanics people like well his, his main two mechanics Jacko and Conjo both Polish guys I always remind them that they're also three times world champion and of course um, they've been with him um, really uh, they marked the, the the change in his levels of success to some extent and um, and that continuity obviously um, is a major part of Ty's um, today's uh, racing schedule and um, very very important elements Ty knows exactly what he's going to get when he when he chucks his leg over a bike um, and Conjo and Jacko have done the groundwork uh, they know how to prepare to suit Ty's uh, the characteristics that Ty needs uh, and, and it's a great working relationship and it's a great working partnership I have to say. And you must be uh, obviously I can't imagine the pride you must have in, in seeing how he's progressed through the sports. Oh, I'm blown away by it. It, 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 it. There's never a day that that passes when I don't sort of think, you know, is this a dream? Is this is this all really unfolded? 
Um, and I remember being in Torren the first time when Ty became world champion, and it was pretty much nailed on. And as um, as Ty uh, became uh, world champion um, and was being um, receiving the bumps and all the stuff on the on the track, and all the hooters and horns were going in the full stadium. Um, I suddenly felt this sadness come across me and I must have been the saddest person in the stadium at the time. Um, didn't really know how to deal with it because the one person that was missing from it all, of course, was his dad. And um, and it was a, an odd sort of uh, experience. I was, I was so pleased. It was unbelievable. The whole thing was unbelievable. But his dad not being present was, um, was something that, um, a feeling that I'll never forget. And of course, since those days, back in 2013, well, you know, here we are with the most successful speedway rider, British speedway rider in the history of the sport. I mean, um, you couldn't make it up, could you? And it's especially when you consider that where he, where he was the first time he was in the GPs, obviously there were uh, extenuating family circumstances there, which I think everybody would understand. But to then go on to be one of the world's greatest riders and the greatest British rider of all time. It's a meteoric rise through the sport. Yeah, it's a very good point. And, and, and people have got short memories sometimes, you know. I mean, when Ty was first offered the wild card when he was, I don't know, 19 years old, his dad had got, uh, he was terminally ill. He'd got, um, at that point, he'd got weeks and months to live. Um, Rob knew that Ty wasn't prepared to enter the GP. Um, but how do you tell a 19 year old that's got a wild card that, uh, you know, he shouldn't be doing it. Um, and he went through an enormous learning curve, finished up pretty much bottom of the pile and, um, and to some extent was written off at, at that level, um, until he got his second bite of the cherry, uh, which was, um, a few years, a couple of years later. And, um, Silence his critics is really what Ty was um, was doing. Um, it, it, it got his act together. Uh, I, I'm not saying he'd got over the the the, 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 um, the departure of his dad, um, because you ne- you'll never get over that. And neither will I. Um, you sort of learn to live with it. Ty got his act together, um, became a much tougher competitor generally. Um, psychologically, uh, in terms of his physical fitness, and um, and you know really got a focus on on the the, the higher echelons of of, um, of world speedway, shall we say? But it all began at Ollerton, didn't it? And this is a story that maybe people will um, find very interesting because I guess the question comes up to you a lot: Why was Ty never a prolific Sheffield rider, considering your relationship with the Woofenden family? But you did give him his break. When Ty was 15 and came from West Australia and started uh, planting the, uh, putting his roots down and showing levels of success, um, what a lot of people forget is that when Ty Woffington turned 16 years old, the day he turned 16 happened to coincide with my Thursday race night. Ah. <laughs> Ty had said to me, one of my uh, life's ambitions is to turn out in Sheffield colours on my 16th birthday. Uh, I had an opportunity at the time to to create a shared reserve position, uh, which was within the rules in those days. I don't know whether it still is or not. And um, and I remember Benji Compton had got that role, and um, 
And so in order for um, Ty to, to, to actually make his debut on his 16th birthday wearing a Sheffield colour, um, obviously Benji had to stand down. He probably didn't get it at the time. I'm sure he gets it now. Um, and, um, and Ty did actually turn out on his 16th birthday um, riding for Sheffield in an official fixture wearing the Sheffield colours. Um, had the worst meeting in a, of his career, by the way. I don't think he scored a point that night. Had all sorts of problems, which was unusual for him and, and Robert uh, being his mechanic and stuff. But anyway, it didn't, didn't quite work for him that night. That wasn't the, the precursor to what happened next. Um, I think he, um, he had his own ambitions. He'd been to Wolverhampton. Uh, he'd rode the track. He, he, he liked the, the structure. He liked the way that uh, uh, it was unfolding. It, it, it was obviously a hot property by this by the time he turned 16. And, um, and he took a, an, an enormous um, uh, motivating deal uh, from, uh, from Wolverhampton. I had to stand back from it to some extent because the one thing I didn't want was a war zone within what I considered to be my family. Sure. Now, if Ty had have seen things and Rob at the time from a different perspective, um, I would have given him a, a sort of a freedom of contract type position, which obviously wasn't on the table when he went to Wolves. Uh, whether that would have made any difference or not, well, so hey, Ty went to Wolverhampton, uh, he, he, he had some freedom in terms of where he went on loan. Uh, obviously, a good friend of mine, Len Silva, uh, offered him fantastic uh, terms. He went to Rye House. He went from a three-pointer to a, to a number one in the first set of averages. And I think, uh, I don't think Ty's looked back from those days uh, when he first set foot full-time in, in, um, in what used to be the Premier League uh, at Rye House. Um, and indeed, irony, the irony crops up all the time, doesn't it, Ian? Um, we found ourselves yeah. in the grand final with Roy House that year. Um, and of course, it was Ty that did the damage um, against us. <laughs> uh, he came to Sheffield, he had a tremendous uh, season, generally, but he, he had a fantastic meeting in the first leg of the final. We went to Roy House in the second leg. It was going to be a big ask, to be honest. Uh, Ryhouse had got an extremely uh, um, good team that that year. And um, and on the home turf, nobody was getting anywhere near them. We didn't do enough damage on the first leg. Uh, OK, we went there all guns blaring in the second leg, but really it was a bit of a foregone conclusion. Uh, we were never winning the league that year, and uh, we never did. We, well, we did. We, we certainly didn't that year, anyway. And um, and you know, um, Rye House became league champions really as a result of this prolific kid that came in as a three uh, and finished, I think, somewhere around a nine point average. I think the, the following year he went to Wolverhampton and went into into the big kids league. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. You know, the progression that Ty continued to make was uh, was solid. It, it was. Um, uh, and hey, you know, I, I never uh, had to, um, I never felt embarrassed in any way because Ty didn't sign a Sheffield contract. Um, I felt as though, to some extent, um, he wanted to make his debut for Sheffield on his 16th birthday. We made that happen. 
the rest of it didn't fall in uh, as I would have hoped at the time. I'd got a couple of sponsors waiting in the wings who could have probably made a bit of a difference to Ty's general um, economics at that time, shall we say. But hey, no hard feelings. Uh, Wolverhampton were obviously instrumental in Ty's progression. And um, and here we are uh, talking about a bloke who's now the most successful British speedway rider in the history of the sport. So um, whether it was good, bad or indifferent to that short term um, uh, time frame, well, the bigger picture is uh, certainly very positive, shall we say. Well, you can always say that you gave him his first official ride, though, eh? Yeah, and, and you'd be amazed how many people would actually forget that uh, that statistic, by the way, uh, Ian. But uh, it's a true story. And um, like many other stories, you know, the, the, um, they soon get forgotten. The, the detail gets forgotten. <laughs> but hey, that, that's really how it unfolded. And um, uh, disappointed at the time, but long term... Uh, very positive. You're listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. I'm in conversation with Neil Machin about his time being a Speedway promoter, 649 meetings at Sheffield and uh, also quite a few in Leicester as well as a promoter, 28 years in that business. But going right back to the very start, we were talking about your godson there, Ty Woofenden, when Ty was just a twinkle in his dad's eye, just about to come along. You were getting involved uh, on the promotion side at Ollerton. Um, how did it all come about? How did you become the man to uh, take Sheffield Speedway forward? Uh, it was never my um, intention to go that way. Uh, Sheffield closed for two years um, when when um, the, the Taylor report and stuff happened uh, at the end of the 80s. Um, I, personally, I was gutted. Uh, Thursday nights was speedway nights, and for two years, no speedway, you know, um, major people to to, uh, to my social uh, activities, shall we say. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, Cliff Carr came in from California, all singing, all dancing, um, uh, made all the right sort of noises, etc. Um, reopened Sheffield, um, with myself and Tim Lucking's um, input and, and graft. Um, and, um, and Cliff Carr um, went out of business um, the following season, halfway through. Myself and Tim Lucking um, assisted Cliff to put it all together in a very, very tight time frame. He opened, reopened Sheffield in 91. It was a mega success. Um, but obviously the reopening um, against the mighty Bellevue was, was, you know, if you're not, if you're not going to get a crowd from, for that in those days, well, you know, pack it in before you start sort of thing. Anyway, so Cliff opened in 91 um, to an enormous crowd. Uh, the crowds returned to some extent. Uh, Cliff got it wrong. He wasn't listening to, uh, to the nuts and bolts of, of, um, of the trading position, shall we say. Um, and halfway through the following season, uh, Cliff was gone. Uh, the chairman uh, uh, at the time was Maurice Ducker, who was actually a former promoter at, um, at Sheffield, as you know. Um, and um, mm -hmm. myself and Tim Looking, uh, long story short, we actually bought the assets from the bankrupt uh, original company left behind by Cliff Gore. And so that was midway through 92. Um, myself and Tim, he was the um, the educated person who'd um, 
who had studied um, politics and uh, and um, uh, journalism and history at Newcastle University, very, very well read. An enormous influence um, on my life generally was Tim. And um, so we set about the job of, um, uh, of taking over uh, Sheffield halfway through a season, which wasn't the easiest thing to do. Um, we, we were as green as grass. We made lots of mistakes. Every mistake we made cost us an absolute fortune. And um, we had very few rider assets because um, what we inherited, um, we could hardly assemble any sort of a team with, let alone a competitive one. So, um, uh, and then of course, um, for the next couple of years, we went through all sorts of um, Tim's uh, heart failure and and, um, and illness in general terms. Um, and it became clear that um, at some stage, um, I was going to probably have to take over the reins um, from Tim and um, and either get out of it or um, or, or um, make a fist of it. Um, uh, when you inherit a uh, or, or when you inherit a business of any kind that's um, that's doing half the turnover that you need to pay the bills, well, it's a bit of a daunting task. Um, Myself and Tim always believed we could do better. <laughs> and that was really the driving force for us at the time. Um, we invested the thing to actually acquire the assets from the BSPA at the time. And, um, and off we went, um, making mistakes that all cost us a fortune. And, um, and I don't really know how we, well, I do. I, I know how we survived in the early years because I, I, um, I propped the thing up uh, in a financial way. Um, and of course, um, in the early years, break, getting back to a break-even number was was the prime objective, and it, it probably took two or three years. Um, I think I inherited about six hundred people a week, um, and I needed eleven hundred to pay the bills in those days. Um, Tim had his um, um, Tim's heart problems uh, weren't uh, obviously improving. Uh, he was never in, in the list for a heart and lung transplant, which is pretty much what Tim had to have. And sadly, um, as we got to 96, um, uh, which was uh, the one big league in British Speedway, which was a, such a problem to, to us. We didn't have any riders. We, we were scratching around the world looking for anybody who'd got a bike and who was available. And... Um, and so we were always in the, the lower regions of, of the league and, and finding results very, very difficult and, um, and try and promote um, a product on the back of that kind of, um, th those kind of results. But hey, um, 96 came along, Tim wasn't getting any better, uh, he, um, he died um, and um, left us in an enormous, left me in an enormous uh, um, dilemma. Um, and I have to say that throughout my entire um, Speedway career at Sheffield, which spanned 22, 23 seasons, um, I, I was always fortunate in, in that I was, uh, I always had some very, very solid people uh, close in. Um, and, uh, and of course, Tim's departure brought in Malcolm Wright. Malcolm Wright was an absolute, uh, an absolute pleasure to have on board. We always agreed on all the major issues. Um, uh, uh, one of the few partnerships in this industry that actually worked. And um, uh, 
and we have we we always um, agreed on all the major issues. Um, David Hoggart came on board later. Peter Curry came on board later. Um, all people that um, were lower level type characters, but the, their contribution, um, I, I certainly couldn't have tackled the the um, the, the enormity of the of, of that kind of a, a, a project uh, without those key people close in. I also had tremendous track staff um, who basically were there forever, um, stayed with me through thick and thin. Um, uh, John Whitaker will probably talk about later. He was the clock of the course. He was a safe pair of hands. Um, the track staff generally, you know, they were all on side. They, they all knew exactly what they were yeah. doing. Um, if I gave them a shirt and a jacket and a cap and a pair of trousers to wear, then they, they wore it with great pride and uh, they all knew their job. And um, and that pretty much continued right through to um, to my departure um, in 2013. Obviously, running a, a speedway club brings many surprises. And I imagine, as you mentioned there, in the, in the first few years, there was a lot of things that probably came out of the woodwork that you weren't expecting. What, what are the things about running a, a speedway club in that way that that maybe generally fans don't realize that you have to factor in well um first of all you've got uh, the obvious things like officialdom vat um annual accounts accountancy uh acquiring assets you can't acquire assets without the resource to do so um improving the presentation all these things boil back to the same issue you have to get commercially sound to have the resource uh, to invest in all manner of of um of, of assets and, and obviously riders became the key thing as far as uh, our patrons were concerned um but there was a there, there was a much wider um, perspective out there as well, uh, developing relationships with the press and media, developing relationships with commercial entities who who were looking to raise the profile locally, um, and uh, banging the drum and getting out there with messages and and with um, leaflet drops and posters in windows and general promotional activity um in the early days uh, we never actually had a weekend off because we were doing summer galas and uh, summer galas and fates and uh wherever there was people i wanted a presence and um and in those days um i had riders that would actually um bring bikes and um, and give up their saturday or sunday to to attend so um we we sort of raised the profile it was it was all there was lots of legwork there was lots of pitfalls, um, and I, I, we also discovered in the early days that some of those people in the BSPA, um, the big fish, the, the big sharks, um, had got extremely sharp teeth. <laughs> so um, <laughs> a lot of things we we sort of um, we took on board. We learned from our mistakes. Um, we had to. Um, you know, in the early days, it was about survival mode. Uh, later, it became about um, uh, having something tangible to, to invest into, like speedway riders, etc. And um, and the whole thing needed to uh, needed um, that that uh, financial uh, investment. And and the only way, the only place it was coming from, um, was actually increased footfall figures. 
Um, and uh, dare I say that word, profit, because um, profit uh, does fund um, everything. You know, increased crowd levels makes so many problems go away. Um, and, um, and of course, uh, you know, starting off with no speedway riders it wasn't a smart thing to do when, <laughs> when you're running a speedway track and, and, and operating in, in a league structure. So um, we invested in the youth development uh, side of, of, of the thing. Um, and um, we can sort of come on to that if, if, uh, if we've got time later, I'm sure of it. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to say, actually, we, 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 in terms of the riders, you said that you started with nothing and you, you were scrabbling round. But which, which riders started to bring it round for you then when you got things going? Well, um, I'd, I'd have to say that um, going back to 94, 94 was an absolute commercial disaster. We were still as green as grass. We hadn't got anywhere near break even. We invested in the biggest signing that Sheffield could have made it at that time, a character by the name of Sean Moran. Um, Sean, um, to, to describe him by uh, or, or his situation um, as Tim Looking did, um, Sean... Uh, with only a handful of meetings into the season, had a crisis of confidence. Um, I don't believe he's ever thrown his leg over a speedway bike since. Um, and um, a major setback, record signing, an enormous financial commitment. Um, Sean did a few meetings at home, uh, retired. Uh, we had no number one and we still owed, I don't know, 10 or 12,000 pounds on his transfer fee at the time. So um, 94 was a, a struggle. Uh, the same year, um, I transferred Rodney Calhoun from uh, Peterborough. Um, he did the season, halved his average and never came back. So that wasn't exactly the best investment we ever made. It's not, it's not stacking up. It's a very good season at all. This is it. Anyway. 94 was a, I, I'll tell you what, if you could get over 94, you could live with just about anything. We had stacks, lots of rain offs. We had to restructure the team. The brightest thing about 94 was bringing Greg Bartlett from um, West Australia. He was such a prolific uh, novice. Um, and I have to describe him that way because he, I'd actually witnessed him in West Australia, done about three or four meetings at Claremont, and we threw him straight into the into the league programme here in, in the UK. Um, and um, so he was the bright part uh, of 94, and, and we had stacks of rain off. And um, actually, something that people will find probably unbelievable in this era, um, we uh, had eight outstanding fixtures to stage at, at home in October and we were running Thursdays and Sundays and Thursdays and Mondays and Thursdays and Sundays right through the month never had a rain up got through the whole thing and actually finished the last day of October on a Monday night with a Northern Riders Championship I must have had some energy in those days <laughs> <laughs> and of course Tim as well you know we, we must have had some energy in those days <laughs> Two or three times a week, eh? Well, uh, at least uh, twice at home uh, during the month of October, uh, and of course we had we, all, we also had a smattering of, of away commitments to uh, to undertake as well. So, um, a ninety four commercially an absolute write off. We we'd spent the money. We had no Sean Moran. We had no Rodney Calhoun. Uh, but the brightest thing about it, of course, is that we did have. Um, um, 
well, actually, we, I think I brought in three riders that year. Uh, Greg Bartlett uh, to start the season. Robbie Kessler came in later, who turned out to be a, an absolute gentleman to deal with and a prolific um, figure around Sheffield for many years to come. Um, and um, uh, George Stansel came, in, came into the equation. Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was sort of um, a couple of steps forward and three going backwards, in a way, because of, obviously um, we didn't need to sign Rodney and Sean uh, and and um, and lose them in within the first season, shall we say? Um, the investment in in the other three, uh, Stansel, um, um, Robbie Kessler, uh, and Greg Bartlett, should have been the icing on the cake. They actually became the cake. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, 94, it was very testing times. Um, I think we probably just about got out of jail at the end of 94, but we had enormous uh, financial losses because, um, really, because, um, you know, because of the money that we owed, we still, that was still remaining on on bad transfers that we'd entered the the market with. So, um, another error, another costly mistake. 95 came in um and the last thing we needed right at that point in time was to actually uh, go up a league and of uh, course mm-hmm. 95 came in with the one big league um a major problem we had tremendous support from our landlords at the time uh dave allen uh who who owns uh Oldham stadium and the string of casinos he saw the the writing on the wall. He saw the problems that we'd got to deal with, um, and um, actually, Dave Allen, without any begging bowls or anything, he came across with um, with a year's free rent. He understood the the, the economic and commercial uh, strain we were going to be under, especially going to the higher league, uh, and obviously different pay structures and all the rest. And um, so 95 and 96, uh, well, as, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, 95, the, the, the um, uh, I suppose the purple patch really, uh, or, or the, the positive thing was about the, the, the general development of Greg Bartlett. I had Roman Matusek in the team who was, who probably saved my entire business in those days, to be honest, Ian, because um, he gave me something tangible to sell. And, um, and what a prolific, product to have to sell uh, uh, as people like Roman Matusek he was the he was the um the consummate uh, entertainer he probably didn't realize that at the time but yeah. um, he certainly knew how to play to the gallery and um and he had the Sheffield people uh, you know they they worshipped him as a, almost as a god um because he was such a prolific entertainer uh, he wasn't scoring maximums every week, but wherever he went, he was he was Roman the showman. He was the bouncing check, um, you know, everywhere up and down the country um, had a sto- had their lead story about this nutcase called Roman Matusek, um, who actually at that time had appeared in five world finals. God knows how he ever got there, but um, <laughs> but that was statistics. And uh, hey, I have to say. Um, God rest his soul. I was sorry to hear his of his um, premature departure. So, which shall we say, um, Roman Matusek, um, 
I will always have a special uh, feeling about Roman whenever his name crops up because um, he really did almost single-handedly save my business. He gave my patrons something to cheer, something to relate to, uh, and he was really um, the icon um, that sort of kept the whole thing together in a way, even though he was the most unreliable character you've ever met in your life. And everybody's got a story about Roman Matusek. Um, and uh, most of the stories I could tell you about Roman uh, would be very, very positive. Um, very much the hard man. Um, and uh, really, um, it, 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 there was an aggression in him, which I think uh, Joe Public really warmed to. Hmm. Um, heroes and villains, maybe. Roman was the villain. And he was very good at being the villain, I can assure you. So, <laughs> hey, whatever it takes to pay the bills, um, Rum Matusek was, was at the forefront, really, of, of, of a, um, shall we say, a, a, a creating this business into a commercial success, in a way. I suppose as a promoter that you know you you want a good balance, don't you, of of people who you know are going to be reliable, are going to be you know uh, going to do the job on the track, of course. But you've got to have a bit of a budget for for a few wild cards, haven't you? That that are going to entertain. And how much is that a, a consideration when you're looking at signing a rider for a season beyond what they what their maybe their average is versus what they bring in terms of. Um, being able to promote your club with them, like you just mentioned there with Roman? Well, well, for me, promoting the brand and promoting the club was my prime objective. And so um, I'm sure that um, when it came to um, doing the Mad Axman stories uh, for the local press and media, I mean, they thrived on it. And, and, and to some extent, it was the local media that made Roman... Uh, into this uh gave him this bad boy image it, always the villain um and um and yeah whatever it takes to, to you know to put the numbers uh, through through the gates on a thursday night uh, roman was certainly supportive as far as that's that was concerned and um and really you know i had him staying with me uh, numerous times um it was an absolute gent to have in you on, under your roof. It, it wasn't the nutcase that people um, that, w that was the facade he he, he um, that he created. So um, hey, you, you're never going to forget me saying any or find me saying anything negative about Roman Matusek because I believe that he was instrumental in in keeping my wheels turning um, until better times arrived. And and of course in those days. Um, there was no guarantees of better times arriving, Ian. <laughs> you know, no. we're talking about the mid-90s here. We'd gone through the upheaval of the one big league. Um, well, it was good, bad or indifferent. The big kids in that one big league, uh, they felt that uh, entertaining Sheffield in their, uh, in, and, and Edinburgh and Newcastle and those sort of uh, clubs, they felt it was bad for their business. They, they'd got teams full of superstars. We were never getting access to those superstars. Um, the thing was never going to work. There was a four, a four point differential in team build, I remember, in 96. So you had to come above 42, but you have to be below 46. All the big kids, the Coventries, the, the, um, the 
uh, the Bradfords, uh, you know, the big kids, the Pools, Swindon, um, they'd all got the big kids uh, and they weren't releasing them. So, you know, we, we were scrapping to get a team over the 42 point level and, and they were all scrapping to get a, a, a millionth of a point under the 46. You've got a four <laughs> point differential across the league. Um, two leagues in one was the outcome, not rocket science. Um, end of 96, they had clandestine meetings and decided that they were going to form this thing called the Elite League, and that happened. And I suppose to some extent, it was a breath of fresh air for people like me, because um, we were never going to be able to employ the world superstars, especially when they were contracted to, to you know, to, to the Elite League um, uh, characters, shall we say. So... Um, uh, and of course, 97 came along the first year of the one big league. It was won by Bradford. I remember being at Bradford for the last ever meeting that they staged um, in front of 700 people, lifted the silverware, great big stadium, super presentation, uh, which was really Alan Ham's hallmark uh, uh, in, in, in British Speedway. Um, couldn't believe that so few people had rocked up to see the mighty Bellevue in town and see Bradford um, lift the inaugural Elite League trophy. Um, anyway, Bradford disappeared um, at the end of that first year in the Elite League. Uh, the Premier League got stronger and stronger. Um, and of course, um, suddenly we arrived in, um, in 1999 um, and suddenly, uh, uh, Sheffield had a prolific um, all-English team uh, who pretty much dominated proceedings at the Premier League that year. Um, and amazingly, we, we um, you know, Sheffield went from being the um, making up the numbers team to the out-and-out -out glamour team in the league, in, in, actually in the entire industry. 99 was a major changing point for Sheffield. It was the first time in its 70-year history that they actually won the league championship. Um, the pride for me personally was immense. All English team, in fact, almost an all Yorkshire team. Uh, Reg as the team manager, um, fantastic. We suddenly became the glamour team. We suddenly started attracting new faces. Um, Crowd levels were growing. Uh, we had the resource to, to, to do things, to invest in presentation. We had the, the resource to invest in, in, uh, in transferring riders in. Um, and suddenly the world became a better place to operate in, having had six and a half years uh, of toil and trouble and conflict, um, wheeling and dealing, uh, teaming and ladling. Um, and of course, um, get, trying to get out of that mode of, of surviving um, commercially um, was never really far away from me because I always knew that um, uh, being tight uh, was really about survival. And, yeah. uh, and, and of course, I'd got everything on the line by now. I'd got enormous investment in Sheffield. Um, uh, I, 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 years earlier, I'd, I'd become it had become my the only business or the only business interest I had, um, 
And so really, um, I, I had to make it work. It, it's as simple as that. And, um, and of course, when people used to um, call me a, a, a tight bastard, if you can use that terminology on your podcast. Uh, absolutely, yeah, don't worry about that. Okay, when people used to call me a tight bastard, I used to get really, really down about it because I'd got just about everything I owned on the line by that point. I'm sure that people from Sheffield have heard worse in their time, but when you're, when you're talking about that and you mentioned Bradford a little while ago there, when they closed, did you see more people coming through your gates, though, sort of displaced Bradford fans getting down to Olerton to take some Speedway in? Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? Um, Bradford ceased. Um, I expected to get some a greater level of travelling from West Yorkshire. I think there was a, a small influence there, difficult to measure, by the way. Um, and well, small... I did, Neil, so you can add me to it. <laughs> OK. Uh, hey, you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I suppose I probably overestimated the effect it was going to have when Bradford closed in terms of... Um, those West Yorkshire folk travelling down um, to, to Sheffield. And, of course, um, the year later, Long Eaton closed, which should have also given us a, a shot in the arm, and I think it possibly did in a marginal sort of way. So both our nearest rivals in, in over a couple of years um, actually ceased to trade. So we should have been in a strong, stronger commercial position, and... Perhaps we were. Um, certainly, um, things obviously got easier following '99 because we were then the glamour club. We had a better following generally. Um, people expected us to be up at the top of the league and 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 uh, making progress in knockout cups and stuff. People expected us to sort of get results on the road or go close away from home. Um, uh, Maybe, uh, maybe you, you you set a high benchmark for yourself by doing that. But hey, all I can say is that in 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 the seventy year history of Sheffield, to actually be the person that secured the first league championship with TC Ford, TC Harrison's Ford on our race jacket was an enormous change in fortunes, an enormous uh, breakthrough, and commercially uh, really bolstered our position in a way. And obviously it coincided with, with Sean Wilson's arrival and, um, and, and of course, Stonewall's departure. So, you know, one thing balanced that. But Sean was uh, such a prolific number one. Um, and um, 99, uh, Sean thrived on the whole thing. He, he thrived on the success. He, he thrived on his own um, uh, prolific performances home and away. And he was very much the figurehead of the team for many seasons to come. And um, so the thing started to come right. We had a different label. We were considered in a different way by people because we, we were league champions. And um, and you sort of get a bit of a swagger about you now. You see it with the team on the track walk. You see it in, in all manner of, of, um, of things. A bit of a sort of a a confident type swagger, which was a new experience for me because, of course, we'd always been in the doldrums for the previous six and a half years. So, um, uh, and I remember writing something one day, Ian, where you get so used to dealing with disappointments and and not quite getting the results here and there, shall we say, um, 
that when you actually get success, you're not quite, you, you're not really geared up to, to to knowing how to deal with it or knowing how to maximise the effect of it. And and um, I can say that uh, that's one of my experiences going back to '99. But hey, you know, the expectancy uh, increased, the crowd levels increased, obviously, and um, everything in the garden was was fairly rosy we, we we didn't dominate everything for the next um whatever amount of years but certainly it was a very very solid starting point where we silenced our critics and um we were actually running a business where we were paying our bills without too much teaming and ladling and um and we'd actually got a resource to invest in presentation in dressing the team dressing the track staff uh, spending money on on uh, consumer advertising, spending more money on on promotional items, etc. And I guess um, you know we had to get to that point before we had that resource. And um, and I always uh, had this obsession with um, utilizing that resource in order to grow and build uh, the business for the future, which is pretty much I have to say um, that that blueprint did unfold in in that way to some extent. This is the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. We're in conversation with Neil Machin, 28 years as a Speedway promoter, 649 meetings uh, at Sheffield alone. Um, He's going to be doing his latest bit of promoting very soon because we're going to get him to choose his ultimate one to seven and where he would hold that meeting as well. And what rule he'd change. Stay tuned for that. Um, But... Success, Neil, to be successful, you need to have a team on the track and also a great team off the track too. Yeah, uh, and and um, I remember making an effort to project exactly my appreciation for those guys uh, wherever I possibly could because um, really they were committed and it wasn't about money. As you well know, um, track staff do not get paid. Um, and... Um, and getting a professional sort of turnout um, with with stability, um, and of course, uh, you know, I, I had a nucleus of track staff that, that that would come in on a Wednesday night to do painting and general tidying and stuff, stuff that that our paint public never saw, ne- never even knew that was going on. Um, but these projects were going on, and, and I had a nucleus of track staff who were totally reliable if we usually on a saturday we'd we'd run a training school on a small track and um and three or four of the track staff had come in and we'd do a section of replacing the safety fence on the big track uh, digging out and um, and all the manual sort of um, behind the scenes stuff clearing the drains all that stuff um and i couldn't have done that without the commitment from those key people some of them uh, people like Kevin Lilly and, and uh, Paul Brown, um, Winston on the back gate, um, they were just uh, nailed on, totally solid, totally reliable. And um, and I consider every one of those people to be my personal friends here today, uh, donkey's years later. And um, uh, that will probably be relationships that were formed um, through Speedway that will probably go on throughout my entire life. And, um, and I hope that that's, that's mutual, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it will be. And I'm, I'm, 
it's a, it's a year or two since I've actually been to Sheffield um, due to mainly work commitments. Really, I was always working when you were uh, when you were on. Yeah, um, but um, I know that John would always be sat um, by the pit gate. Yes, and you knew when the full meeting had finished when they carried his chair across the track. <laughs> that's how I judged it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, John Whitaker was really the safe pair of hands. We always had a great rapport. Uh, I always extended the normal courtesies to John as the clerk of the course. If I was taking people on the infield, I always cleared it with John. He never, ever said no, but it was just courteous to ask. And um, we had rules and uh, and obviously um, everybody knew their, their position. John Whitaker was the boss of the, the, the uh, operational pits area. Um, been there and worn the t-shirt, uh, was licensed uh, by the SCB for donkey's years, something like 60 years indeed. Um, Wasn't he a referee as well? He was. He, he, his first job in Speedway was actually at Bradford as a colour marshal, where they used to hand out the, the helmet colours. Right. <laughs> so a, a snippet <laughs> there. Um, going back to when he was, uh, I don't know, a young bloke of uh, early 20s or something. Yes, he was, he was a, um, a fully-fledged um, SCB referee and an, an FIM referee, by the way. Um, so I was fortunate to inherit John Whitaker as my clerk of the course. We had a great rapport that, that spanned pretty much my entire time at Sheffield. Um, uh, up to 2013 John always said he was always talking about retiring um, and I always uh, uh, said to John well when you retire I'm retiring as well and actually not that it, it, it was controlled in any way that way but that's pretty much uh, how it panned out because um, I sold the business uh, at the end of 13 um, and John Whitaker had, had already um, come to a conclusion that um, he was going to retire from his clerk of the course duties. So uh, actually what we always talked about in jest actually became reality. And uh, and John Whitaker was was a solid character, um, a great character to have in your pits, to, uh, knew the, 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 um, the rules inside out and um, was just a great figurehead who commanded a level of respect and uh, a, you know, People underestimate the, the role of a clerk of the course in Speedway. He is the most important person in the stadium. He is the person who, who uh, will be interviewed by officialdom, uh, coroners, if you get a, a, a serious incident um, unfolding. And, um, and his position within any Speedway track should be, um, should be um, marked with a, a much greater level of respect than it is possibly. Only my opinion. And a huge responsibility on you as well, I would imagine, being the promoter. You know, it's down to you. Ultimately, your name's above the door on the promotion of the club to make sure you've got a safe track, to make sure that the facilities are safe for the fans as well and that everything's enjoyed as, as well as it can be. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a very, very solid point, uh, to be honest, Ian. Um, at, at the end of my term... Um, at Sheffield, it was one of the fears I always had in the back of my mind. We're in a very, very di di um, dangerous industry. Injuries are always uh, never going to be too far away from you, and uh, you're always going to get a broken ankle or a broken shoulder or, or worse. But um, 
we never got anybody um, killed, and um, I don't think we ever got anybody crippled. So um, I, I suppose I, I would regard that as, as to some extent as an achievement. And really, that was as a result of complying. Um, I mean, you've got to remember that we—I went into Sheffield uh, very few years after ninety-six bodies um, at Hillsborough. So you can imagine the scrutiny that we were under, being a mile from um, from um, well from Sheffield Wednesday, where um, where they had the Hillsborough disaster. Well, you're so, on the same road, aren't you? It's just literally just It's actually less than less than half a mile indeed. So you can imagine the scrutiny we're we were under in terms of health and safety issues. Um and that just became the norm. And I suppose uh, we, we had no option but to comply. And I suppose that compliance um and the rules that were set out by the local authority probably um lent towards um the 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 um minimizing the injury shall we say um I, I was pleased to come out of it without um without those kind of upheavals that some of my colleagues did obviously have to live with and and um and encounter throughout their careers and um so i i, I was pleased to come out of it um um uh, without those um with, without that burden shall we say um yeah. But hey, you know, Sheffield was a very different place to operate than any other speedway track in the country in those days because of what we just talked about with the Hillsborough disaster and being and and, and uh, local authority health and safety people were almost uh, running scared and paranoid. So uh, if it didn't say it in the book, I can assure you it wasn't happening. And uh, uh, hey, there was a few heated moments, but we, uh, you know, we were all on the same page and we, we sort of got through it. We've talked mainly about your time at Sheffield so far, but um, after Sheffield, you uh, became involved in the promotion at Leicester, which I know was slightly related to Sheffield at the time. But um, how did all that come about? Yeah, um, what was going on at Sheffield was that I'd agreed to retain my licence there um, because they needed a vote in general council. And because they'd got a new consortium that, that was uh, that, that was moving in, um I in the first year certainly I I became their um, their voting member, and just retained my license. Mm. Um, they then uh, uh, the, the new owners decided to restructure, bring new you know consortium members into the BSPA. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, I I was uh, I had a di- a discussion with uh, with David Hemsley who I pretty much sort of brought into the sport for good, bad or indifferent. Um, and David said, take a license with Leicester, you know, uh, deal with commercial issues, blah, blah, blah. And um, really, I felt I felt as though I was a bit um, a bit sort of surplus at Sheffield. Um, People were asking me questions that weren't my, um, where I wasn't the, the person that, that, that should, uh, that they should have been asking or, or, um, um, or tendering uh, answers. Um, so I, it, it was, it was pretty straightforward for me to actually take a license at Leicester, which I did um, under David Helmsley's um, promotion, um, along with Dave Darcy. And, um, and hey, I, I was at, um, I, I was in a, a different uh, situation at Leicester because I was 
pretty much um, focused purely on commercial aspects, uh, having rapport with sponsors, uh, corporate partners, if you like to call them, dealing with certain aspects of the media, really um, setting up promotions. Um, decision making wasn't my thing uh, because I w it wasn't my business anymore. And I was never making decisions that somebody else was going to pay for. So um, um, trundle along in that way at Leicester for, for uh, I don't know, four years or five years or whatever it was. And um, some major upheavals, I have to say. Uh, and of course, Leicester made the big mistake of going to the higher league when they didn't have the resource to do so. Um, put them under enormous commercial pressure, which I don't think, uh, I think everybody's aware of that that, that actually happened. Um, and hey, I, I just got to the point where um, back in January of this year, um, there were things happening that um, where I felt as though I was going to be exposed to, in a way, uh, to um, things that I didn't agree with. Um, in the sport in general, uh, I, I, I sort of came to a, a, a conclusion that um, I'd got other things to do with my life. And um, and I resigned from the BSPA and from Leicester, um, uh, from, from uh, uh, by email, from Australia, I think probably uh, first week into January. Um, no hard feelings, no regrets. Um, I, I served some time there. I I, uh, I did some positive things for Leicester. Uh, we we just encountered the most successful story in British Speedway going back many many years, um, and Leicester really dominated the league last year and won everything. It was a it was a great feeling to be part of that, along with Stuart Dixon, who became the the the. Um, the, the key to to it all and the, the, the full-time nuts and bolts uh, team manager stroke promoter and um, Leicester will continue and uh, and, and will um, and will now become the glamour club of um, when Speedway does get operational again um, Leicester will be become the club um, where everybody wants to take a point off them and they will I think develop that swagger that we talked about because of the success <laughs> of last year. It was great to be part of it, um, and um, I suppose to some extent, um, I felt like yesterday's man. And um, uh, I, I, uh, I didn't agree with the way that the sport was going in general terms. Uh, and even though I was instrumental in negotiating with um, TV companies and stuff last year as a, as a management committee member. Um, I just felt as though uh, my time um, was um, was going to move into other things. So um, that brings us bang up to date, I think. You've mentioned a couple of times there about um, the potential mistake of, of going into the uh, top league. Uh, obviously, Sheffield have, have now done that. Obviously, they haven't ridden yet. Um, what is the potential pitfall there and how severe... Uh, are the differences between between the two leagues financially? Well, to be honest, Ian, um, this was going back to the days in the, uh, I don't know, 2004, 2005-ish, going back to those days, um, I was being lobbied strongly to put Sheffield in that top league, not only by members of 
the elite league as it was but also um my sponsors at the time wanted me to go there because they wanted some tv which was pertech they want they were desperate to get some tv i looked at the entire equation and i knew that i was going to lose my thursday night race night which had been carved in stone since god was a boy um i knew that i would be uh going against clubs that had already established thursday and i knew that um i would be moving to mondays to to to, to deal with um tv fixtures etc um plus the fact that i was then going to be into um employing grand prix type um expensive uh people um uh, in heat leader roles uh it, it wasn't really my thing uh many many people have proven it i mean leicester came back out of the uh what used to be the elite league uh business was better uh they went back to their traditional race night of saturday the whole equation was much much better at the lower level for leicester uh i couldn't tell you whether it would have been at sheffield uh i didn't want to lose my thursday race night either and I certainly didn't want to sacrifice it to other tracks who got priority and and finish up um, staging Mondays. And of course, hey, I had to ask myself and many many other people the same question: if you're if you're running on a Thursday and you have to stage a meeting next Monday, do you actually do you actually ditch the meeting the Thursday before or the Thursday after? Because either way, you're going to be staging two top class events in three or four days. And I could not see the commercial benefits in doing that. Uh, and that's pretty much was was uh, one of my dominant thoughts in terms of staying away from the from the top league. My crowd levels weren't that uh, different to, to the top league. And the only thing that, uh, that that made the difference, of course, Ian, was um, was this thing called the TV money. Now we've all got our own opinions about the, the TV, the live TV show, and, uh, and and the resource that's gone with it. I mean, let's not forget the TV money has been dominating British Speedway now for twenty years. Um, Personally, I think that a lot of the TV money that we've had over the years um, could have been spent in a more effective way. Uh, it could have been spent in a way where the industry in general uh, could have grown through promotional activity and, and uh, consumer advertising, etc. But hey, that, that wasn't happening. Um, I think the TV money probably... Um, was really the deciding factor, certainly in the last 20 years, in terms of where you go. And of course, the other factor, and Sheffield's a classic example, they desperately needed, having tried Sundays last year, uh, they needed to get back to a Thursday. The only way they could do that with designated race nights was to actually move up a league to retain or to get back to their Thursday race night. So... You know, things have changed in terms of the decision making process or the whys and wherefores or the reason for doing this or not. Um, 20 years ago, slightly different reasons. Today, designated race nights. If you're in the top league, you've got to race Monday and Thursday. You've got all the humbug. 
because people are going to be in Poland, they're going to be missing meetings, uh, not good for your, for your paying public. Um, and, um, you know, they don't want to support part-time riders who are in Poland or doing Grand Prix or doing uh, world championship events or team events or, you know, um, I always wanted to put out the same seven riders every week. Um, mm -hmm. And I suppose to some extent that was my, um, that was always uh, my um, prime objective, shall we say. So I, I stayed away from the top league and I think there's, uh, there's good reason and evidence to, to support that decision. And I never had anybody lobbying me on the terraces wanting to go to the elite league. It's funny how it's changed around, isn't it? To keep to keep your Thursday race night. Yes, it meant staying away from it before, but now it means it means doing it now. Entirely right. Yeah. Now, if I'd have been faced with that scenario, uh, I, I I couldn't preempt what I would what what I would have done. But you're absolutely right. The criteria changed. The the, the designated race nights for that league of Mondays and Thursdays. Um, I, I, I always felt it was a little bit like the tail wagging the dog. Um, I always hated this uh, this um, this concept of uncontrolled doubling up. Um, I was part of the the decision making uh, years ago when doubling up was first discussed and uh, created. Um, it had to be controlled. It wasn't controlled. It became an easy way to employ. Uh, a team uh, without actually bringing new faces in, without the expense of, uh, of, of um, people traveling in, flying in, flying out. Um, hey, totally alien to me, you know, riders flying in and flying out. That was, you know, that, that wasn't in, in my uh, equation uh, in any way, shape or form. Um, and actually years ago, when I had to bring Rome Matusak in from Cheko or Zoltan Adorjan from Hungary, it was bloody expensive, man. And that was many, many years earlier. So um, I never wanted to, 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 um, to go in, in that direction. I always wanted to put out the same people. And I didn't want to be operating a business that was dominated by Poland. And whether we like it or hate it, um, that's really where it's up to. You're listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, and I'm in conversation with legendary British promoter Neil Machin, 28 years promoting Speedway in Great Britain, uh, mainly at Sheffield, 649 meetings, and at Leicester as well. And he's going to be picking his all-time 1-7 to seven and telling us which rule he'd change. <laughs> Stay tuned, details on the way. But um, when you look back at your career, Neil, what are your achievements that, that make you most proud over that time? Well, I, I would have to say, um, well... Quite a few of them, actually. In in terms of key, um, to spend twenty eight to operate within the BSBA for twenty eight years is in itself, in my world, a, 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 an achievement. Um, um, bolted into that, everybody got paid as per their deal. Uh, if you ever come across anybody who tells you that I owed them a penny then you can safely call them a liar. Um, that was always top of my um, agenda, shall we say. Um, my team and the BSPA got paid when I didn't, and that happened many, many times. Not complaining, that's how it was. Um, as we said earlier, no one got crippled or worse. 
Um, I stayed 649 meetings. Um, and, um, and actually, I have to say that um, a, a, a major surprise, um, going back to a few years now, five, six years, whatever, uh, I was actually voted by the referees to receive um, the Jeff Dolby Award, which is a sort of a, an award that's um, that's presented on an annual basis, Jeff Dolby being a former SCB referee who sadly died. Um, an award was left in his memory to allocate to, to, uh, to a, a person who made a contribution to the industry. And um, shock and uh, surprise, um, I was awarded the Jeff Dolby Award. And, um, and when I looked at the, the role of honour of people whose names was on that trophy, um I, I was i was moved i was humbled by it um to be recognized by you know by the scb and its referees who voted that uh, my name should appear on the jeff dolby award might be something that you've never heard of to me it was an, an a, tr a tremendous achievement obviously um winning two league championships knockout cups all the rest of it um the league championships uh, are the are, are the biggie um, after the league championship? You know, if you, if you can't become the league champion, then you want to win the knockout cup or the, the young shield or, or the, whatever it's called these days. Um, but hey, two league championships, okay. Uh, you might say, well, two league championships in twenty two years ain't that good a batting average. <laughs> maybe I would agree with that but hey to win two was a hell of a lot better than anything in the the, the previous history of Sheffield Speedway um, and um, and of course I, I had tremendous proud and achievement um, winning the first one in 99 70 years after Sheffield first set foot in um, um, in as a speedway venue so um yeah, lots of achievements, lots of uh, relationships with riders um, all over the planet. Um, we still those relationships, uh, although most people are retired now, um, they um, continue. Um, and um, what a journey! Uh, I have to say, uh, what a fantastic journey! And uh, and and of course, the journey continues. Uh, I, I have no idea what happens next. What happens next year? What happens this year? Um, or the year after, um, but what a journey! And um, I can only relate to the positive aspects of that journey, even though, as you can well appreciate, there was its um, its negative uh, aspects as well. But we tend to um, focus on the more positive stuff, don't we? Well, they're talking about Bradford making a comeback. Would you Would you be interested? Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm retired. I'm yesterday's man. Um, I wouldn't have the uh, enthusiasm or the energy that I had when I was 40 years old. Um, I, I have to say that um, I've been um, supporting and assisting Robbie Grant to, to get into Newcastle. Um, really because I see lots of attributes in Robbie Grant and his acquisition of Newcastle. Um, I see lots of attributes I, 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 it, um, that I had when I was his age or, or slightly older, shall we say. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I, uh, I I wish the Bradford thing luck. I know that there's going to be all sorts of issues to actually get 
Bradford to the tapes again, as it were. I know that Tony Moll spent a, a small fortune in investigating Bradford, um, and he drew a blank. Uh, whether Steve Reese has got some different criteria, well, that remains to be seen. And of course, Steve Reese is under pressure as a stock car promoter because, um, as you know, he's lost Stoke. There are strong indications he's going to lose uh, Bellevue. And um, he's looking for a venue. And uh, maybe Bradford being on his doorstep is um, is something that Steve Reese is going to pursue. And uh, let's see. Uh, what, one yeah. thing I do know is that Bradford will not be able to exist specifically, purely on stock cars. So uh, if, if it's going to have a blueprint of success in any way commercially, um, they're going to need some speedway in there at, at some level. Um, I don't know much about the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it, but I have heard the same noises about Bradford. We'll keep an eye on that and it will be great if, if that could get off the ground for sure. You are listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and this, Neil, could be, well, your your final promotion then because it's time to do your Speedway paradise. We're going to come up with your ultimate meeting and we're going to find out your one to seven of all time. Uh, we're going to find out which rule you would change, but we're going to start off by asking you, Neil, which track would we be racing this ultimate meeting of yours on? Well... I'd have to say Sheffield because it is the fastest racetrack in British Speedway because um, because I've sort of grown up in that venue. It's probably had more investment in that venue than all the rest of the tracks in, in the industry in British Speedway. Uh, I'd have to say Sheffield. Having said that, um, the most prolific racing you will ever see um, is actually a track that Rob Wuffingham built in West Australia some some years ago, um, as Ty was being a young bloke doing his first laps. Um, and Pinjar Park is creates what what I would suggest is speedway for the connoisseur, and um, very very different the two the two venues I mentioned Sheffield being the fastest track in British speedway. Um, Pinjar Park, uh, well, it, I don't think it would even qualify to be in British Speedway because it's a very, very small Costa Mesa type venue. Um, but entertaining uh, the paying public and giving them close, uh, exciting racing that they understand, uh, really, uh, I suppose, was always uh, my objective. So not a huge surprise then. The event's going to be at Sheffield, of course. Where else for Neil Machin? Um, what about your all-time one to seven then, Neil? I know that you've given it some great thoughts already. Well, I have. And and people will say, well, it's easy to pick a team full of, of, um, of um, former world champions. And you'd be absolutely right. <laughs> I'll just run through them very, very briefly. Go on then. Obviously, my uh, my list would have to start with Ty Woffing and the most successful British Speedway rider in the history, and he's my godson. <laughs> so <laughs> I think course. I have to be allowed that that uh, indiscretion, shall we say? Bruce Pennall, the the consummate, uh, uh, well, the pinup boy. You know, he got it all. We we failed to maximise the effect of having Pennall uh, in British League. But hey, what colour and, and profile did he bring to the industry? I think he's probably the only Speedway rider in ever to receive telegrams from the president of the US uh, on becoming world champion. Ivan Major would have to be in that 
that, um, that identified in that list. Um, total professional. What a fantastic character to deal with. Um, obviously, uh, he always knew his value. He brought sponsors and corporates into, into World Speedway. And um, who could ever create a list of this kind without including the great Ivan Major? Uh, I have Greg Bartlett and Roman Matusek on my list because Greg Bartlett was the unfulfilled um, um, potential. Uh, he rode in Bridge League for two years. He could have gone all the way. I spent lots of time with Greg. He's an engine tuner. Uh, is a very, very solid, reliable character. And he could have gone all the way in World Speedway, but hey, um, that didn't happen. Um, but in terms of prolific from zero to hero in two years, um, not many riders will will come in as a novice and the following year be taking uh, Sam Ermelenko from behind at Sheffield. Uh, that was Greg's potential. Rome Tusek saved my bacon. Uh, he was the entertainer. Uh, he was the, uh, the, the the villain uh, in general terms. He was considered by many people to be the villain, but he entertained my public. And once we, uh, if we get ever get away from entertaining our patrons, then we are in trouble. Uh, Peter Collins would have to be on my list because um, Peter uh, became world champion in 76. Um, and uh, Peter was always box office. If you'd got him uh, in a meeting anywhere in, in, in his heyday, uh, he would he would swell the crowd. Um, and of course, how could I um, not include Greg Hancock? Because um, Greg has really uh, rewritten the record books with every time he threw his leg over a bike in the last uh, couple of seasons anyway. Um, turned 50 the other day, did Greg. Uh, known him since he was a, a, a probably a 16 or 17 year old, go back a long way. Tr tremendous respect for Greg. Uh, what a fantastic uh, profile for, for World Speedway. Um, and of course, all of these people on my list have a, uh, you may say, well, it's obvious that you're going to include people who've got 16 world championships between them, which I, <laughs> which I have done. Um, but commercially, good business. Speedway is a business. And the people who think it's a Saturday night toy, think again, get into promoting Speedway and get into growing the business. So a lineup of all stars at Sheffield for your ultimate meeting. But now here's the exciting one for you, Neil. We'll give you the rule book. Which rule is the one that you're going to change? Well, actually, there are two. <laughs> go on then. I'll let you have two. Off you go. Gardening at the start is an embarrassment to the industry uh, and could very, very easily uh, be stopped. And if you were to draw a line three metres back from the start line and nobody moves into that line... Uh, prior to being under starters' orders, then you'd stop all that gardening, getting off bikes, kicking shale. It's all an embarrassment to me, and I think it is to our paying public. Okay. Uh, and, and I think and I think it's a pretty easy fix if we were serious about it. 
And um, I think it should be compulsory for every team in Breach Speedway um, to wear the corporate gear. And if a sponsor's put in two quid or two grand or 20 grand, doesn't matter. Uh, every team should have its identity and should be dialed in totally to who uh, who their sponsor's identity is. And it should be uh, within every contract and it should be compulsory. And it might just give us a more professional uh, outlook to the outside world. Yeah, it's a very good point. Because I think, you know, the teams that do all match, might, the Polish teams, for example, do it, don't they? And it does look great. Well, not just teams. I mean, obviously, team members become the focal point. But dressing your track staff, projecting your sponsor's identity through your... You know, we've all got 30 track staff or 25 track staff or something. What a fantastic opportunity we have to project our sponsor's identity. Very mm. few tracks do that. You can't tell the track staff from the you know from the from the uh, paying public so i just think that we ought to sharpen up lots of those and and you know we're talking about presentation aspects here um the one thing that disappoints me in speedway in general terms is the presentation um you look at any grand prix wherever it is uh the presentation is superb it's something that's obviously had some investment and you look at most of the domestic presentation and it's pretty tosh. Uh, desperately needs some present, some, some investment and definitely needs a fresh pair of eyes to actually bring it up to, where are we, 2020. It's probably mm. going to be 2021 before we really get operational. So, hey, you know, let's get into 2021 and stop, uh, stop messing around as though we're in the mid-70s, eh? There you go, you see, the thoughts of Neil Machin. Stop messing around when it comes to presentation in Speedway. Neil, um, that sounds like a fantastic meeting, and thanks for sharing your thoughts. The final question for you is, what's next for Neil Machin then? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to be trucking off to uh, West Australia shortly when, um, when flights allow. I've just bought a new apartment on the marina um, at the place called Mindari. And I've got to buy some furniture and a fridge and a city and stuff like that and uh, actually look at the marina. So um, I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to that, to be honest. Sounds nice. Yeah, it, it does, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, Neil, and thanks for sharing all your stories. It's all a true story, by the way. Thanks to Neil Machin for joining me on the Humans of Speedway podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. It was so insightful, and I know that we barely scratched the surface, but we'll certainly do more in future, I'm sure, because it's very hard to condense such a long history in the sport down into such a short space of time. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast series so you get new episodes when they're released, and give us a rating too if you've enjoyed it. And I'll be back soon with another human of Speedway to chat to. In the meantime, take care and stay safe. Podcast Network.